Amen. All right. Today, we are going to be in Hebrews 11. Now, we're going to be in a lot of places. Just be real. Whenever you're going to talk about somebody that's like got 80-something chapters of Scripture about them, uh, you're going to bounce around. But we're going to use Hebrews 11 as kind of a home base for this service. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, turn or tap your way to Hebrews chapter 11 towards the end of the Scriptures so that you can follow along. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, and we'll have those words on the screen so you don't have to panic. Kaylin. All right, here we go. Hope Church in October of not this year but next year will turn 10 years old. I'm very excited about that because when we planted Hope Church, we always thought we were about to be done planting because we always thought it was going to die. We always thought this was not going to keep working. Uh, it was just going to be over. And then at some point, you kind of go to thinking like, okay, this is a going concern. I, I think this will continue. Now what? Uh, for, for Rachel and myself, we are planning to be here. We're excited to be here. This is where the Lord's put us. There's nowhere for us that we would rather be. And so then you start thinking. You go, okay, 10 years. But we really, you know, if we're going to be here for the rest of our, you know, like kind of working lives, and really the rest of our lives, how do you do this for another like 30? Like it's one question to say, how do we plan a church or how does a church start, exist, and then become something that will like continue and not just go away. Once you kind of crest that hill, then you start thinking about, all right, now how do you keep going? Because <laughs> it's not easy, right? So like, how do you do it for another like 30 years? And that's where I, I start thinking about these stories in scripture or these people in scripture who are given to us ex as examples, not just of like great faith or not just of great works, but of people who get to the end, people who keep going. They become guides to us in the faith. And the Lord's given a ton of them as you work, work through Scripture. But over the summer, we're going to focus in on some of the kind of main ones in the sense of they're very heavily featured in Scripture. They're referred to a lot. And my hope is several things. One, I really do hope that it gives us the grace to see how to keep going. I mean, I don't know what your kind of midlife moment is going to look like. If it's getting a different car or getting a different you know, relationship or whatever kind of like the kind of stereotypical versions are. Or just like working out a lot or just getting really sad or, you know, whatever midlife crisis looks like for you where what has been a motivation starts to kind of peter out and you got to find something greater, find something more sustaining. I want you to be able to see these guides. I want them to be for us what I think God has given them to be. But I also want you to just have more education of what the scriptures are and what they say. And these guys get used quite a bit, male and female. These people get used quite a bit as examples for us. They become placeholders because of what the Lord did in their lives. So I want us to see. I want us to be able to feel it and understand and see from these examples how God is going to continue to deal with us. So to understand Abraham, I want to take you first to Genesis 12. Now, you can just stay in Hebrews 11. We'll have verses on the screen. But in Genesis 12... The Lord says to Abraham, now it says Abram, and it should. God changes his name at one point, but I've driven myself crazy before trying to do that, where like the first half of the sermon, you only say Abram, and the second half you say Abraham because you get into that or whatever. We're just going to say Abraham, all right? He had a name, it was Abram, God changed it, made it Abraham at one point. We're going to use Abraham the whole time. Please don't get upset. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's a lot going on there, but God calls Abraham, and he gives him this promise, this promise that he will give him a land and a people. He's going from a country and a kindred, and God's going to give him a land. He's going to bring him to a land and a kindred. He's going to make him into a great nation. And that's not recruiting, that's birthing, that there's going to be all of these people that will be ethnically part of that nation. And then, of course, there will be these gathering to them from all these other nations that's going to take place as God will bless the world through this people. He's going to make their name great so that they will be a blessing to the world, to the other peoples of the world. Now, that, that two-part promise of land and people, along with the other stuff that kind of goes around it, can be a, for us a little bit of a groundwork. We'll talk land this week and people next week, but it also creates a little bit of a barrier to understanding Abraham. Because you're reading it, you're going, okay, this is a subject that I'm learning about rather than an example I'm going to follow. And the reason is because you don't expect God to call you to go start a new country. It'd be weird. I don't even know where you'd go. There's a lot of land in different parts of the United States. Where are you going to secede? You know, you can't do that. So I don't know. Like wilderness Canada? Like where would you even go that would be a new land? So you're not expecting God to make you into a nation, give you a land and have descendants that are so plentiful like these talking to Abraham about. So you're reading this stuff and you go, okay, well, that's not me. So what is it? What is the story of Abraham or what is the lesson of Abraham that we are to embrace and follow? Well, the Bible is very clear that this Abraham guy was not just a man that he was going to bless and not just a man that he was going to establish as a land and a great nation, but Abraham became for us the man of faith. Here's what I mean by that. If you go to Hebrews 11, the New Testament, where they're looking back over all of God's revelation at that point, they categorize Abraham. And they say, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder of God is God. So do you see a little bit more of what we mean by faith? We can abstract this out a little bit. God gave Abraham a very specific promise, but he said in that promise, all of this blessing that was going to come to the world through Abraham. God has given us things that he said, things that are promises that are relevant to us. Abraham had faith in those promises, and that faith changed everything for him. He, he had a very different life because he followed through on what God had given him. You and I have those same promises. It doesn't maybe seem the same because of the land and nation thing and the people thing, but, but it is actually really, really similar. We are called to build his kingdom and to see God have lots and lots of children that are called his. But there is this exact same sort of movement that is, do you understand what it is to have faith? Hebrews actually defines it in the first part of chapter 11 when it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's really helpful because I think we think of faith as believing in something without evidence. 
The littler or the less evidence that you have, the greater the faith you need in order to believe it. And that that's what faith is. It's believing in something that can't be true. It's believing despite the fact that you know it can't be true. But the Bible never describes faith that way. The Bible always describes faith as a final step, a step of conclusion, a step of commitment that takes place after you have a reason for that faith. Abraham had a reason to believe God because God spoke to him. I don't know how often that happens to you. When it happened to Abraham, he heard. That became for him the foundation of a promise. And as you walk through his life, you see that there are several interactions between God and Abraham as God continues to build and support Abraham's faith, his trust in God, his promise, the assurance of this thing promised, this thing hoped for, the conviction of this one who is there, though not seen. He lived as though that promise were true and though it would happen. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If they'd been thinking about Ur of the Chaldees where they left, they could have just gone back. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now, it's describing what happens for the one who has that faith. Abraham trusted God, and he didn't necessarily receive everything in his lifetime that was promised to him. In fact, he received almost nothing of what was promised to him. But what he did receive, and the thing that he received that we also want is that last sentence. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It is possible to follow Abraham. And whatever faith he had that made God look at Abraham and say, you're my man, that may make God look at you and say, you're my child. God did give Abraham a promise that give him this forward momentum in the world that he was looking forward to what was to come, was building in that foundation, the city whose foundation is built by God. You also have that same promise. You have that same outlook through Christ. We'll talk about how in just a second. But it's helpful in order to understand how, how you can access Abraham's life. Because again, being called from your hometown to go out and establish a country and just go live in tents doesn't seem very accessible for people who are like, you know, on the PTA or like have to be at soccer practice Thursday. You know, like you can't just do that. So how is this an example to us? Well, it's his faith. I don't understand his faith really well, though. There's a lot of things that his faith wasn't. And I want to be careful to say those things so that we don't miss it. But then there's very specific things that his faith was. So that's how we're going to kind of move forward. There are things that his faith wasn't. His faith was not just being a great guy. We watched a Spider-Man movie last night. and It was so cool because you're watching this kid become Spider-Man and then like discover his powers and they keep rebooting the franchise because I think that's the only like really cool part of what it is to be Spider-Man. It's like to go from being a kid to being like a superhero, you know, and discovering yourself. 
Abraham is this amazing guy. We can't be like him. Obviously, he, he had this thing that we can't have. And so you don't really think about his life as an example. He must have just been this really godly guy and this really faithful guy and had these qualities that we don't have because otherwise, why, why would his life be so much more impactful than ours? But that's not how the Bible describes Abraham. The Bible doesn't describe Abraham as this incredibly great guy. In fact, when the Lord calls Abraham, he would have been an idolater. I don't know if you know the Ten Commandments, but there's a place in Scripture where God gives like ten rules. The, first, the one that's like the first one. Does anybody know it? You all do. You're just scared to say it. I know. You shall have no other gods before me. It means you can't make for yourself an idol. That means that if Abraham was an idolater, he's a breaker of the commandment given by God. And he was an idolater in Joshua. So Abraham, then you fast forward the people of Israel, and then you get Moses taking them out, and then you have Joshua that's helping them conquer the promised land. Joshua, looking back on the history of the people, says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. God called Abraham not because he was a great guy. He was an idolater. And then after coming to know the Lord, after this call that brings him out of Ur of the Chaldees and takes him into this great adventure with the Lord, we see Abraham is still not that great a guy. As they're going around, there are all these greater sort of civilizations and peoples that are around them. And Abraham has this idea that instead of allowing these people to just kill him and take everything, including his wife, that he would sort of use his wife. He made a deal with her that as they would go into these civilizations, that she would pretend to be his sister rather than his wife so that they would treat him well for her sake. Meaning she's so hot, the leaders of the area are going to try and marry her and then give this great gift, this great marriage gift to Abraham. And so instead of being killed as the husband that needs to be out of the way, he'll be blessed and have investments made in him because he's the brother of the one they want to marry. What? I cannot imagine a scenario where you're going to have that happen. Like, there's not a lot of, like, kill your wife, take your stuff that happens in, like, Draper. But even if it were a possibility, when would you think that that was the solution? I'm not trying to crucify Abraham. He's a guy like we are. But I do want you to see him as a guy like we are. He was cowardly, and he used his wife as a way to... I don't know, be protected. That doesn't seem like a lot of faith. A little bit later in his life, he decides that if God's going to make a nation with him and his wife is barren, which she did have infertility issues, he would sleep with their slave. Just make an error a different way. Well, that's problematic on a lot of levels. A, adultery, not married. B, if she's your slave and you're going to have sex with your slave, like there's consent issues, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. But really the thing, um, I don't know, I don't don't want to try and get into like a ranking game, but the thing I want to most kind of emphasize out of that is that he's the man of faith and the heir issue is a key aspect of the promise that he has faith in. So this great man of faith isn't really even that consistent with his faith. So what is 
faith, or what is Abraham's faith like? Well, it's definitely not Abraham's a superhero. Abraham's all that great a guy. He is very much a person. His faith was not that. It was also not him going from a little bit to a lot. Now, the promise is grand, but Abraham is not taking this promise up and deciding to go after it because of just the investment strategy. It's not like Ur was terrible and he was poor, and so he was going out to Canaan in order to get an incredible amount of wealth and security and and advanced society. I don't know if you know this or not, but the society he was leaving, Ur of the Chaldees, is what we know as the Sumerian culture. It was in that kind of on the other side of the Euphrates area, and it went all the way back to 4500 B.C. Abraham's in 2000 B.C. That means when Abraham's born and reared in this area, this civilization is already 2,500 years old. Try to process that for a second. America's like 200 or a little bit more. This people had reached incredible cultural heights. They invented not only this form of writing, but they then made it more elegant in this thing called cuneiform. And we know about it because they were such a stable and large civilization that there's a lot of examples of cuneiform even to this day. If you've ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you're all like, duh, of course we've heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, maybe you have actually, because it's still a thing that people read. And why? Because this story from the Sumerians was kept. Like, we still have it. This was not some like backwards like uh, tribe in the middle of nowhere with no sort of stability or, or consistency. This was a great in the history of the world, this was a great civilization. And Abraham's lot within that civilization can't have been that bad because, as it says in Genesis 12, 5, Abram took Sarah's wife, Abraham took Sarah's wife and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions because they had more than one possession. They gathered together all their many possessions and the people that they had acquired in Haran and set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, we can put that under the, like, he's not a great guy category. He was a slaveholder. But also, I don't know, you got to be doing pretty well financially if you're going to have slaves. I know that that's a little bit of a dark point to make, but I think we can at least admire the point. He was not a poor guy in a poor culture. He was at least a comfortable guy in an incredibly advanced culture. And yet God calls him out of that to go and live in a tent in a place where he could never hope in his lifetime, to build anything comparable to the comfort or cultural advancement of what he was leaving. Faith isn't just being this incredible person, but faith isn't also going from a a little bit to a lot. Now, we would say, of course, that receiving God, you get way more than anything else. but, But the scriptures are also really clear that to follow him means to take up a cross, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You follow him, there's going to be something involved there. Faith certainly isn't getting an easy life. Abraham's life wasn't easy. He became a tent wanderer. Now, several of you go tenting for fun. I don't get it, but I know that you do. And fun is one thing, but you wouldn't want to go like professional in that. 
If we talk about van life, hashtag van life, meet somebody that's done hashtag van life. They'll tell you real quick the limitations of hashtag van life. And that's a van. I would much rather be in a van than a tent. As by camp last year where I was on an air mattress in the middle of a yurt on the floor with kids walking over me to go to the bathroom in the night. And I said, that's enough. Took my air mattress and went and slept in my van. Now it was a Honda Odyssey. It wasn't one of those just jacked up wonderful affairs. But I loved my Honda Odyssey compared to a yurt. And a yurt is still way better than being in a silly old tent. But Abraham went to live in a tent full time with his family for life. His faith didn't make his life way easier. And his faith was definitely not getting the promises in this life. Abraham didn't. He just got a vision. He got a beginning. He got a hint. God told him he was going to have this great land. Do you know how much land Abraham owned in Canaan when he died? Bible trivia. If you don't know the first commandment, you probably don't know this either. But he only owned... The, the graveyard that he buried Sarah in. He bought it so that he could bury his dead there. It's the only place he bought. So apart from owning Canaan, he owned one sliver, and the one sliver he owned really wasn't all that profitable. It was just a place to bury his dead. So there's the land promise of what he experienced as a land promise in his life. So you go, okay, but what about the great nation part? Sorry, same kind of sliver. If you're expecting to produce from yourself a great nation, you think you're going to start with more than one. I mean, there are people in pioneer times having like 17. You would think Abraham's going to be at least in that range. When he died, he had one, Isaac. Hardly a great nation. Technically, the smallest group of people you can have. One. He didn't see this promise when he lives. That's why Hebrews says that, that they're, they're looking forward to this thing. They're seeing through the promise what will be. And in Abraham's life, there are several places where this kind of bounces back and forth, and God has to step back in in order to help him understand and see. And obviously, he goes after and creates Ishmael with Agar. But, but he has this concept. He has this Promise, even though he doesn't get to experience a lot of it. Faith is not getting everything that you think you're going to get now. So what is faith? Or what did his faith do? Well, his faith completely changed the world. I mean, if you're going to put a list up of the people who have had the most impact on humanity, Abraham's easy top ten, probably top five. Why? Well, the faiths of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all consider Abraham to be their head. On top of all the things that have sprouted from those groups, as Islam sprouted from Christianity, as a cult out of Christianity. And Judaism or Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. But, but all those people, I don't know what you know demographically about the world, but if you were to count up all the people that fit into Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, it's a lot of people who consider Abraham to be their father in the faith. Uh, he was impactful. God absolutely fulfilled his promise. But I think the, the big thing that we want to see from Abraham, or at least the thing that we want to access as the thing that we want in order to have faith like Abraham, the, the bait on that hook, is again Hebrews 11, 15, and 16. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they could have gone back. But as it is, they desired something better, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God 
is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. That's it. That's the money. That God is not ashamed to be called their God. Abram was a comfortable guy as an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees. He was going to live that comfortable life and die that death as all of Adam's children had been, separated from the God of, of all things, the Holy One. And yet in Abraham's life, through his faith in that promise, God says, in fact, no, that he's not ashamed to be called Abraham's God. There is a reuniting that takes place there. It's intentional that God puts this story after Noah and after Babel. It is the place where God is establishing this one central way in which he is going to reunite himself with his people. And we see it in Romans. God says about Abraham through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in the New Testament, for if Abraham was justified by work, if he was made right before God, reunited to God because he did good things, yeah, he'd have something to boast about. Not before God, but before us. But what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis there. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The central problem in Scripture is our sin. The only solution is not earning some sort of favor before the Lord. That's what this is saying. The only solution is receiving righteousness outside of yourself. You only receive it one way, and Abraham is for us the prime example of that one way, which is faith. He looks to the Lord, trusts the Lord, and the Lord forgives his sin. He counts righteous Abraham. He's not a righteous person, but he counts Abraham as righteous. How? Through his faith. Okay, you're just begging the question. Faith, how? Well, there's another part of Genesis, and, and again, it's just a necessity of preaching about somebody that's got so much scripture written about him that you're going to bounce around. But moving quickly, in Genesis, there's another place where the Lord speaks to Abram. And he says in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a cow, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And Abraham brought him these. Cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. They're too small. And then when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. I don't know what you think about obedience. But if I ask you to bring me a cow and instead you bring me two bloody halves of a cow, technically you brought me a cow, but that's not what I'm expecting. Right? <laughs> if I ask you to bring me a heifer and a goat, 
If I ask you to bring me a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon, I would not expect you to then somehow buzzsaw these things into two pieces. But Abraham did because he understood exactly what God was really asking him. The context of God's request of these animals was that Abraham was not sure if God was going to do what he had promised. He promised a land and he doesn't have that land. So how shall I know you will possess it? I shall possess it, that that promise will take place. God said, all right, let's do it. Abraham knew exactly what he was talking about. In ancient times, when you made a covenant with a ruler, you would cut an animal in half and you would put bloody side, uh, bloody animal side on this side and then the other side of that animal, the bloody other half of it, on this side. You would declare the covenant and then one of the people of the covenant would walk through the animals. And what you were doing, it's called to cut a covenant because they cut the animal in half and lay him on either side, and you walk through that bloody mass. And you're, you're saying, I, I'm, committing, I'm committing to this, whatever the covenant is. And if I break it, may I be as these animals. And the person who walked between those pieces of animal was the one who was now liable for that covenant. God said to Abraham, let's make a covenant. Abraham would have fully expected now that he has set these things on either side to be required to walk between them. That God would then say, okay, if you stop trying to sell Sarah to these other leaders and you stop trying to have sex with your slaves, then I will give you this land. But if you do those things again, may you be like these animals. That's what you expect. That's what religion seems to say. You know, look at these cards that we've got, the religion versus the gospel. That's what we think, is that it's going to be quid pro quo. God gives you a rule, you follow that rule, he blesses you. God gives you a rule, you break that rule, he punishes you. But look at what happens. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold. So this is Abraham sitting, waiting on the Lord to tell him the covenant that he's about to cut. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. He goes on to talk about the full promise that he had given and committed himself to be killed if that covenant didn't come about. Now that's crucial. It's understood quickly and deeply by people who lived in that culture. For us, where we don't make promises that way, it takes a second. But if you've heard of the New Testament and you've heard of Jesus Christ, you probably know one thing about him, which is that he died on a cross. He died on a cross so that his blood shed would cover our infractions, our breaking of the covenant that we have with God. What Abraham witnessed in Genesis 15 is what all of these people in Jerusalem witnessed as Christ was hung on a cross and killed. God shed his blood, even though it is us that have broken the covenant, as he promised he would. Abraham had faith that God would take care of his sin. You want the faith of Abraham, then you need that same faith. Not necessarily faith that's going to take you to another place, even though it will. When I was born, I didn't think I would live and die in Salt Lake City, but here we are. But that's not the main idea. The main idea is that 
you trust in the one who will make a way for your sinful works to go away, for you to be justified or counted as righteous. In that way, Abraham is your father. You may not be ethnically Jewish. I'm not either. But you become his son in that you follow his same path of trusting the Lord and having it counted to you as righteous. And that kind of faith is what sets your eyes from the things around you in this world up to a city whose builder is God, up to a relationship with the God who loves you and knows you. Not because you're righteous, you're not, but because you're forgiven. Listen, there's a lot we're going to talk about with these different people. We're going to do Abraham one more time next week, and then we're going to keep going and move through a lot of different Bible But before we go any further, do you know that, Lord? Take the moment to adjust yourself again. Abraham understood the moment he was taken out of Ur of the Chaldees, and yet we see over and over again in his life that he had to re-understand this stuff, that God had to show it to him again and show it to him more fully. Show it to him more fully, as we'll talk about next week with Isaac. So you say, I'm already a Christian. Great. Are you living this way? Do you understand this faith? Is this what characterizes you? So that as you move forward in the world, you are somebody who brings about the kind of change that somebody like Abraham did. Not because you're good like Abraham. He wasn't, and neither are you. But because you have a good God like Abraham. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, your scripture is beautiful. But your scripture is also ugly. And it's ugly because it gives a very honest picture of what we are like. And Lord, in our sin, we are ugly. And yet, Father, we see time and again that you make a way for us to be forgiven. For the blood of somebody else to be shed, even though we are guilty. And in your infinite love, you chose to make that person whose blood is shed yourself. Lord, you died that we might live. You were cursed that we might be blessed. Lord, you were killed outside the city that we might be brought into the home, the new kingdom that will be forever and ever. Please, Father, help us as individuals to understand that message, to believe it and to live by faith with our eyes, not in this world, not caught up by a million little things, but on what is to be and on the Lord who loves us. We do love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.